Good morning. And I believe it's time to dismiss the small humans. So jam, head out. It looks like we've already got a collection over by the donut table. So as the children are filtering out. So yeah, as Garrett mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday marks when Jesus came to Jerusalem and crowds greeted him. They hailed him as the coming king and messiah. And just a few days later, Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, and he was betrayed, turned over to the authorities, and executed. And by next Sunday, we'll be celebrating Easter. We'll be celebrating the resurrection. So this week is known in some traditions as Holy Week, and there's just so much that happens throughout this week. Um, So as I was looking through the, the relevant chapters, I saw about a dozen different really good sermons that we could have today. Uh, So I thought I could speak for about 12 hours today, but after all the comments that Garrett got about his sunburn sermon a few weeks ago, I thought I should remind y'all instead, make some time this week to read over those chapters. So it would be starting in, in Matthew, it starts around Matthew 21, in Mark around Mark 11, Luke starting around chapter 19, and in John starting around chapter 12. And you can see all the different like stories and teachings that are presented just in those few short days when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Um, and in Matthew, it really ramps up a lot of the, like that chapter about all the woe to the Pharisees is put in that, in that context. Um, but today I will be talking primarily about the triumphal entry itself and what it says about the kingship of Christ. And as I was writing this, I thought, okay, I've got a solid two-point sermon going on today. But as I kept writing, kept praying, and kept thinking over this, the first point just became the entire sermon, and the second point turned into community sharing. Um, So keep your ear out for when I say that the second point is, because that's our setup for community sharing today. So my one point today, um, the the topic of today's sermon is, what kind of king is Jesus? And I'll start by reading from Matthew 21, from the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Sometimes as we're listening to these passages, we need a little bit of like extra commentary to help bridge cultural divides. Like when I think of the story of the prodigal son, there's a couple of things that really help us get the full impact of the story. 
like it's important to remind us that standing in the 21st century, it, it is not like when, when we read about the father running to the son, we're like, he's so excited. That's great. And we miss out on how radical and countercultural that was and how undignified it was for a man of his status, for the patriarch of a family to literally run. Um, and so that's one of these things like sometimes you need cultural context to help make things sense, make sense of things 2,000 years later. But then you get to the donkey. I don't think I have to spend a long time talking about how donkeys are still not particularly dignified, but I did want to talk about the donkey a little bit. Uh, like, donkeys are not the noble steed you expect a king to ride in on. Like when I think of a noble horse, I think of like shadow facts. Yay, like a couple of people are excited by the Lord of the Rings reference. If you need any commentary on the extended lore of the Lord of the Rings universe, please contact Bethany. She will keep you updated on that. Um, when I think of other famous pop culture donkeys, um, I think of like Eeyore is like literally depression. And um, the donkey from Shrek, <laughs> this section likes the Shrek reference. Um, and then I was trying to think, like, what are some other donkeys? And I keep thinking of, like, Dominic the donkey from a really terrible Christmas song from the 60s. But thankfully, most people aren't familiar with Dominic. And now, next Christmas, you're going to start hearing Dominic everywhere. Donkeys ain't cool. Donkeys were not cool. They are still not cool. And our king, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's quoting from Zechariah. And if you haven't read Zechariah lately, that's another thing add, add to the list to read in the next couple of weeks. Um, there's just so much messianic imagery happening within the book of Zechariah. And it's got some really like just amazing prophecies about who Jesus is. And it's got some really, really weird things, like a flying scroll that appears in, in Zechariah's dreams and visions. Like there are things in it that were confusing at the time, so they're still confusing for us. Um, but again, it's so worth it to spend the time reading through the prophets and seeing how has God revealed his character throughout history. Um, so the choice of a donkey as something significant, it, it tells us something significant about the nature of Jesus' kingship. He didn't enter Jerusalem with a procession of chariots as an emperor might. He chose the undignified, awkward animal. And it is consistent with his character. It is consistent with the character of God, the creator of the universe. We see it through the life of Jesus. When you think about a king, where do you expect a king to be born? At least in a house or maybe a palace. Maybe, you know, it's the 21st century, maybe a hospital. You don't put a barn at the top of your list for where kings are born. You don't picture a king hanging out in a barn and then put in the manger, put in the animal's food dish. Um, and that shows us from the birth of Jesus that it's a different type of kingship. It's not what the world expects when it comes to that. He grew up in Nazareth, which probably doesn't mean a ton to us because we are so geographically removed from where he lived. Uh, but hear what Nathaniel had to say about it, and this is in John 1. This is when uh, Jesus is calling some of the disciples. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Can anything good come from Nazareth? God let himself. He let Jesus be affiliated with a town that was so poorly known outside the region that the biblical authors constantly have to remind us that it's in Galilee. And when it's mentioned, it's usually mentioned as kind of a put down. It makes me wonder what the equivalent would be around here. And I just kept thinking, can anything good come from Nevada? And I wonder what, what other towns do we want to dunk on? But like, it's, it's unexpected, right? Like, again, you would expect a king to come from like Rome or Jerusalem, not Nazareth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, God shows the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So let's look more at what kingship looks like to Jesus, and what does lordship mean. And again, I could stand here reading out about half of the Bible, about half of what scripture says, but here are just a few examples. In Matthew 20, Jesus called them together and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These characteristics of Christ is what leads the Holy Spirit to lead Paul to write as he does at the start of the letter to the Philippians. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that was James quoting from Proverbs, where, uh, Proverbs 3, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. So again, this is the nature of God. This is the God who created us. This is the God we serve. And if we follow the history of God's people, we see that his nature is humility, even though he does have all the might, all the power. He can cause the sun to stop in the sky. He can split the Red Sea. But his nature is to be a humble servant. One of the clearest examples of the nature of the kingship of our God, um, I I kept looking at 1 Samuel 8, and I thought about reading the entire chapter of that one as well. Uh, But again, add, add that to your notes. Go read 1 Samuel 8. It is a story. That's when the Israelites demanded a king. 
they asked for a king such as all the other nations had. And the Lord told them, he told the Israelites what a worldly king would do to them. The king would conscript their sons, take all the best of their family and fields and animals to serve the king, and the Israelites would become slaves to the king. And the Israelites were like, yep, sounds good to us. We want that. And the Lord granted that, which again, there's a whole other story there about sometimes we ask for things that are bad for us, and God's like, okay, that's what you want. See how that works out. And it leads us to ask, what kind of king are we looking for? What kind of king are we seeking? Um, Part of the human fallen condition is to just look for certain characteristics in leadership, like strength and might and confidence and worldly power. And it seems that not much has changed here from when the Israelites demanded a king. When's the last time you heard of a world leader who was praised for their meekness, for their humility? for their willingness to apologize. Most follow this same model of self-assured confidence, boasting in strength. And we eat it up, don't we? We still will use physical strength as a proxy for character or integrity. And it's not just our political leaders. I kept thinking, like, who are the famous business leaders who, like, who, who shows the character of Christ in their business leadership? And it seems that the people that make it to the top by the world standards rarely will manifest God's characteristics. Um, and I kept just thinking about things like, like in business, like the executives and the attorneys and the public relations people, and like the whole organization is trained not to show accountability for harm they cause. And then settlements are sealed and there's non-disclosure agreements and nobody really knows what happened and if somebody was in the wrong or admitted fault or they just stopped paying legal fees. All that accountability is just hidden behind closed doors. But when people encounter Jesus, what does accountability look like? When Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he said, if I've wronged anyone, I will make it right. I'm going to pay back four times what I stole. This is extravagant restoration. This is a true repentance that leads to 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 genuinely trying to make things right, genuinely making reparations. And it's not this kind of secular repentance that demands cheap grace and silence. Now, even as I was writing this, and I wonder how many among us, like, we start making these excuses, you know, like, well, it's different because it's what it takes to operate out in the world, out in our broken culture. And that's where I just kind of get, like, I don't have a compelling point here. Um... Because I kept wondering, like, am I trying to please man or am I trying to please God? Um, But I also get, like, when I go to work, my job is to teach sociology at a college. And I'm not going to show up with my sermon and do that as my job. And so I wonder, like, how how do I fully show God's characters throughout life? How do I engage in the workplace and show who God's heart is? Like, That's where, again, I I tried coming up with, like, here's a coherent statement on, like, what does this mean other than I know I need to follow Christ's humility. I know I need to honor God in the workplace. I think all of us have to navigate what it means in our workplaces. And I do, I really wonder, again, what would it look like? What would it look like if every avenue of business and government and everything out there, if it's truly transformed by God's heart? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian business owner? What does it mean to, to honor God in all that we do? And the question I keep coming back to for my own heart is, am I valuing what God values? Do I value humility? 
Do I value repentance? Do I value kindness across all aspects of, of, my, of my life? Or is there a part of me that still admires worldly kingship and those who just want to boast and bully? Now, at this point, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about something that's happening in, in the broader Christian culture. And I'm going to be, I'm trying to be careful here as I wade into like this really messy topic um, because there's just like, there's these problems, like problems where people who wave God's flag, who, who are Christians, start acting like the world. And I don't want to stand here judging. You know, I don't want to be here like, I thank God I'm not like that church over there. I don't know which way to point. Like, there's a church in every direction. So I'm like, I don't want to be like, I thank God I'm not like, yeah, hands to myself. Um, but there's also an issue, like, we need to speak truth. We need to be overflowing with mercy towards others. And we need to have this, this profound humility about what's going on and be truth tellers and be honest. Um, and so in my notes, again, I've got this statement, please refer back to Garrett's sunburn sermon, where he goes on about this, this thing about like judging others in the same, same amount you'll, you judge others, you'll be judged, which again doesn't mean we never speak truth. It means we have profound humility. Um, see, that was like under a minute and you took an hour. <laughs> Except go listen to his sermon. <laughs> yeah, profound humility, got it. <laughs> if you want to know what that actually means go listen to a sermon, uh, preferably in the shade. But there's this thing happening in Christian circles where we keep getting drawn to, to, well, kings, like strong leaders, people with charisma, people who get a following. And in recent years, we've seen a lot of these leaders tumble. We have seen especially, um, especially several sexual scandals popping up um, the one that I've heard the most talk about among some of my friends is what happened with um, the apologetics guy, Ravi Zacharias. And he just like this report came out about these numerous affairs and sexual scandals that he was hiding. And I was reminded, like I read the report on it, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul rebukes the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. Like even by the standards of our sexual or, or of our secular culture, which is highly sexual, um, even by the standards of our se secular culture, what he did was a gross abuse of power. And it's not this problem that's just confined to like theologically liberal or theologically conservative churches. Like there's been stuff going on with, with like from Hillsong to Liberty U and prominent Christian leaders falling from lofty positions. And how many more scandals might there be if greed and pride were taken seriously? Just this past week, there was something about um, a ev conservative evangelical church leader in England, and Anglican Twitter was all over it. And I was like, I didn't realize I followed so many Anglicans on Twitter. <laughs> but my Twitter feed this week was basically Anglican Twitter, immigration law, Suez Canal. That's like <laughs> just one right after the other. Um, but yeah, so this guy had been like, was viewed as the, essentially like the conservative bulwark against the perceived liberal movement of the church. And some people around him knew what he was doing, but were afraid to speak up because he was like the figurehead of this movement. And they're afraid that if they speak out against this leader, that that movement would die. But now it's, the truth has come out. And that movement is really struggling. 
And so like, all of these things just coming to light helps if I flip the page on this one. <laughs> Again, there's this question of what, what's happening? What is going on in our culture? And it's just, it's hard to talk about, like, even as I was thinking about how much of this, how many details do I want to share? What do I actually want to say about here? Like, I feel so much sorrow for people who are prisoners to their sins. I feel so much sorrow for people who are in positions of leadership who, who are, like, feel trapped in their sins and don't repent and don't get, like, God's forgiveness in that. And especially when it's after a person died, like, they don't have a chance to say, I'm sorry for what I did to the people that they've hurt. And again, I don't want to just sweep things under the rug and leave it like, oh, you'll see the CNN headline about what's going on. And then like, oh, the church is silent on it. Um, but like, as, as I read about these different things, like in some cases, leaders distance themselves from accountability. They distance themselves from people and refused when people said, hey, what's going on in your life? And sometimes people, the people who were supposed to keep them accountable, didn't, didn't live up to their responsibility because they started to get their identities being like connected to this powerful man. And like if this church fell or if this, this leader fell from prominence, they felt like they would be affiliated with them. And so they didn't speak up. Um, and just all of these things. And again, it's this problem of valuing a king too highly valuing that one leader too highly and not speaking truth and not taking sin seriously. And so certainly this is a message about the destruction that sin causes. Sin kills us, and it's not out of nowhere. It's not that somebody is just absolutely impeccable in all walks of their life and then makes one terrible choice. A lot of these were slides into sin where people tolerated unclean, impure thoughts, harbored hatred in their hearts, disrespected the image of God. After the desire was conceived, it gave birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. But the effects and destruction is so amplified when it's a person in a position of power. But again, that, that abuse of power itself tells us something about this sin that again, we tolerate in ourselves and that I can tolerate in myself. It seems that at times, even in Christian circles, we reject the lordship of the one who was born in a barn and rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and we start to want these strong, powerful leaders. We start replacing God with our favorite pastor, be it someone we know in person, or someone who's written lots of books and had massive revivals and something. And again, I'm not trying to take the responsibility off the people. Um, not, tr not trying to say, like, a lot of these leaders were pointing people to themselves rather than to Jesus. And I'm not going to minimize that. But there's this thing about, again, what does it say about us when we have elevated a person so highly? Like when we tolerate the wrong kind of leaders or encourage and praise it. Maybe we chose to value what the world valued. Maybe, and again, sometimes we're misled by somebody else's sin and we don't know. But when the truth comes out, what do we do? Like imagine if you've spent years believing in somebody or supporting a ministry and then find out there was something rotten inside. And we have this choice, right? We have this choice to double down and like defend this person. Or we have the choice to say, hey, sin is sin. Sin corrupts. And then we need this deep dive in humility, the humility to change our minds, to admit the truth. But refusing to admit our errors is pride, and it's a rejection of God's grace. We know that God is abounding in grace. We know that the Spirit sees our heart. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
and our hope should rest in Christ alone. So personally, like when I, again, I love reading a variety of people's reflections on their walks with God, but as much as I may appreciate reading, and again, we could go through the list from like C.S. Lewis to N.T. Wright or Tim Keller or Francis Chan or Beth Moore, who else do I want to name check as like somebody on my bookshelf that I'm like, man, I really appreciate their insights on who God is, but my faith doesn't rest on them. My faith rests on Christ and him crucified. The tomb was empty. His word was true and will continue to be true. And so the, the message I have in this is just, yeah, there are, there are problems. Like sin is sin and sin corrupts people. Um, I, and I, get, I don't want to act like we are immune as, as a small church. We did have a couple of conversations in the pastoral cohort about some of this. Um, like some of it is like one, of the, one advantage of this model of like smaller churches is that we kind of, we avoid the worst of this great man phenomena of like a person that has a following of 10,000 people. Um, we have a lot of layers of relational accountability. But again, lest I drift into the, I thank God we're not like other churches, there is the question of like, do you pray for your leaders in the church? Do you love the people in your church enough to hold them accountable? Do you talk to people about what's really going on? Um, and as you listen to sermons, are you looking for solid food? Are we just looking for who is a powerful, compelling speaker? Or are we looking for who points us to Jesus? So please, check our references. When we quote from Scripture, go read the Scripture. What does the Bible say? And are we preaching what is in Scripture? So throughout your week, immerse yourself in walking with the Spirit. And if I say something that doesn't line up with Scripture, talk to me. Again, like I... I try to read a lot of scripture, and I will admit that there are entire books I haven't read in a couple of years. Like, do not quiz me on what happens in Romans. I'm very confused. Um, so if that's your strength, please be my friend. Help me out here. Um, if I say something that doesn't line up with scripture, um, may God grant all of us the humility to, like, correct each other. So to wrap up, this is the end of point one. Uh, to wrap up this point, I have a few questions for reflection. Um, what characteristics do you find yourself supporting in leaders, be they political leaders, business leaders, or church leaders? Are they characteristics that reflect Jesus? Do you find yourself placing hope more in people, in a person, in a pastor, even someone full of the Holy Spirit, rather than placing your hope and your trust in Christ alone? You pray faithfully for those in leadership, again, all across leadership, uh, praying that, that God will transform their hearts and protect them from the attacks of the evil one? Do you pray faithfully that the Holy Spirit will transform, transform people, fill people, and shine in all that they do? So, transition, the second point. The second thing I wanted to talk about today, and again, this deserves several sermons on its own, um, but I wanted y'all to primarily minister to each other through community sharing on this one. So I'm going to talk for just a couple of minutes on this point. At the start of the week, the crowds greeted Jesus. And when the political powers arrested him, most of the crowds disappeared. And even his disciples got scared of the rulers of the world. And they denied Jesus. And only a few people remained to see what happened. And a lot felt hopeless and confused. So there was those days that Jesus was in the tomb. Just imagine, like sit on that for a moment. 
How hopeless must that have been? How empty. Even as I'm talking about this, part of me wants to rush to the resurrection. You're like, I know what happens in the end. I know the end of the story, and it's fantastic. Jesus had prophesied that he'd be raised in three days. Um, But when he returned, the disciples didn't even recognize him at first. There were a lot who just didn't quite believe that it would be true. So I want us to sit for a few minutes in those days in between. What would that have been like? The one you've spent years following was executed. Imagine that sorrow. Imagine that conflicting hope, like you have this hope that what Jesus said was true, but you don't see it yet. So there's anguish, but excitement and anger and confusion, all of these just complicated emotions. And that's where I want us to have this point of connection, because we've all experienced things like that. Like, we have experienced things where we have heard the promise. Jesus says he will make things right. We know that God is good. And sometimes we're still in those days when you don't see it yet. Sometimes we're praying, we're waiting, not just for three days, but for years, for decades. And sometimes we realize the promise will only come after the resurrection. And so for community sharing today, I want us to sit in that, in the waiting. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the community sharing prompt. Then we're going to have one last song. And then we're going to do our community sharing on this coming prompt. So if we, do we, have, we have one more song, right? Yes, cool. Um, so the community sharing prompt is going to be um, what verses, what, like, what stories in the Bible or things in your own experience or, or quotes, preferably a lot of Bible verses, like what things help you to hold on to hope? What helps you to hold on to hope in Christ when things around you seem hopeless? So that's our prompt, and I'm going to repeat it again as we start community sharing. So I'll close us out with a prayer. Lord, we're so blessed to be able to come together in a public place to praise you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us and providing us with places to meet and ways of staying connected. I pray that we be a community devoted to you alone, and I pray that we be a people who turn to you, the bread of life, to satisfy all of our needs. Lord, guide us with your Holy Spirit to stay faithful even the times that we feel empty. Love you. Amen.